Hi, my name is Wale Emmanuel, and you're welcome to a new season of In These Moments. Now, I'm pretty sure you're listening to this thinking, finally, and yes, I'm happy to be back with a new season. The journey to this season has been a very interesting one. So many things have happened in my life personally, and um, I think everything has worked itself perfectly to get us to this point where um, I'm able to start this new season and to finally start bringing these stories to you. In the last year and a half, I have collected quite a few stories, stories that I find interesting, stories that I that I think you really love. Some of them, I wonder if they're dated with so much that has happened, but I'm going to figure out how to how to make sure that they're, you know, they're current or whatever. But there's been a lot of um, preparation going into this season. I promise you this season is here. There's no stopping. There's no interruption. Before we even get into anything, I just want to say thank you so much for your patience. I know it's been a while. I didn't plan to be gone for this long. Um, so much is responsible for this, but um, I appreciate you guys waiting. I appreciate you guys hitting me up on social media. And I promise you we're here now. We're about to get back to what we do best, listening to some really interesting stories and um, having a good time. Now, as we didn't finish last season the proper way that I wanted to, I'm going to start this new season with three stories that were available on Patreon already. Now, if you're a Patreon member, if you're part of the Patreon family, you've heard these stories. These were extra stories from stories that were on the main feed. So for people who are not on Patreon, you haven't heard these stories before. I'm bringing them back because there was meant to be a review of the season at the end of last season, which never happened. If you don't know why, you can listen to the last episode that I dropped. What we're going to do today is we're going to listen to three different stories that um, are some of my personal favorites from last season. They're extra, they're the Patreon exclusives made available to people that are not on Patreon a year or so after. Now, if you're on Patreon, don't worry. Something special is coming for you. Don't even worry about that. We're going to resume the regular Patreon schedule and everything after this episode. So this episode today is going to start as somewhat of a episode zero. If you haven't listened to the full stories, you can go back and listen to them. Gives you more context into the story. Today is April 27th. The next episode, the official episode one, is going to come out May 11th. That's in two weeks as usual, as we usually do it. People on Patreon are going to get the extras from that episode, exclusive episodes as well. Um, for them this season, I'm working on another podcast, which I think is really exciting. And I'm going to make it available to people on Patreon first. It's a really fun podcast, working with some brilliant people on, on the podcast. So that's going to be, I'm going to make that an announcement at the, at the appropriate time. But yeah, this first story is a continuation of my discussion with Adekule Gold. I believe it was episode two from last season. So if you haven't listened to episode two, you can go back and refresh your memory or go back and listen to it. 
So um, a lot of this will make sense as you go. I'm the only son, the eldest. I had three sisters and then I lost one. So I have two now. I lost one to a heart um, disease. She was the other singer in the house as me as well. There are three of us that sing, me, Kumbi, which is my immediate sister, and then Busayo, the last one that, that we lost. God bless her soul, she was a sweet soul. He speaks about his father's influence on him and how his parents took to his music. At first, he, he didn't understand it. I mean, and that's not him alone. It was my, both my parents, they didn't get it. But when they started to pay off, I mean, Noma, I'm proud of you. <laughs> you know that kind of, yeah. And he was my fan till he passed. Any new song that I released, he would um, call me and say he likes this one. Yeah, you know, and sometimes he gives me ideas. He, he refers me to his friend that had like a whole vinyl catalog of old school classics. He would tell me to go and visit him so maybe I can get fresh inspiration and all. That's, that was my, that was my friend. One thing that I'm happy that I learned from him was integrity. You cannot mention my dad's name and then say you have any dirt on him. No, that's never going to happen. He was like an upright man. With his job, he was very diligent and then he showed in his career. Became principal early, became a premsec before he died, you know, he was, he did very well. He was very brilliant and a very fantastic artist, you know, so it was very good. And then he taught me a lot. He made me the kind of man that I am right now. As far as integrity, honesty, you know, and hard work. I have to say a big shout out to Tosian Lopade, the owner of XDS. He was, he was the one that gave us the first money to record ever. 2007, gave us 10,000 at that time, I remember. And that song we recorded, the title is Helpless Cry. It was a gospel song. That was my first song ever to hit the radio. We were a gospel band. So everywhere we went to, we performed that song. And they would go, you know, sing it again, sing it again. It was, it was an era for us. The song is called Helpless Cry. That one, you can go and listen to. It was funny, but yeah, you can. I asked him if he felt out of place at YBNL as the only singer with all the rappers that were present at the time. And if he ever did a song with Olamide. You know what? You know what's interesting? I didn't even feel out of place. I mean, yeah, the music was different, but I was my own guy already. I was grown already. I was living in my own rented house. You know, I was in my, I had my own car. So I was like a G already, you get so. And then I started mixing with other people that were already killing it. Kesh was already hot, you know. Kesh already had fire jams. Victor was hot already too. And Olamide, I mean, forever hot, you know. So it felt good. So I just, I just learned from their work ethic as well. Mind you, me too. I was already a worker, you know, like a workaholic. But when I was even saw these people, they were never resting. It felt good to just be in their midst. I enjoyed the great times. I mean, places they, 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 they go sometimes. Me, I might not be able to go because I mean, not my vibe. So I just pull out and then. Yeah, it felt, it felt very good. Contrary to what people think, I didn't even feel out of place at all. You know, it was just a bunch of like street boys. Because even me too, where was I coming from? It caught now. So <laughs> it felt like a perfect match. It was good. It was good for me. I enjoyed it. Olamide has a culture of wanting you to shine alone. You know, do your thing. Let it not be that, oh, because somebody jumped on your song, that's why it became big. Do it by yourself, you know. So I feel like that also is one of one of the reasons he didn't even try to interfere. He doesn't try to be all up in your business, your music business. We also now got busy. I can't even explain it. But one time we we tried, we 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 worked. Me and him, we have two songs that we're sitting on. We just we need to find a day to release it or do something else. <laughs> I told Fuse, I said, let's do something different. Let's not be afraid. I was a bit scared, but I mean, I'm like, 
I mean, what's the point? What am I, what am I getting scared for? If they don't like it, we'll give them another one, right? It's okay. Let's do it. When I released that song, there were mixed feelings. People were not sure. It didn't enter immediately. It didn't really hit Nigeria like that, right? Because they were used to the, um, the gold style. And me, I was never going to do that because forget even music. I'm a creative generally. I'm a visual artist. I don't know how to try doing the same thing. It makes me mad. So we did it. And then it didn't really hit Nigeria like that. But that, that, didn't, that didn't deter me. Like I knew that I was going to go on. But bro, when I started seeing numbers, the day somebody sent me a video of one carnival in Barcelona that they, were, that they were playing this song and some people in the crowd were singing and they were dancing to it. That's when I'm like, wait. Sometimes we actually overthink these things. Because you want approval so bad from the people that you think, I mean, yeah, your people sometimes, you forget that. It doesn't matter sometimes. Some people will love it. Some people will not. It's okay. Those ones that love it, just service them. How can my biggest song at that time pick up? How can Call On Me trump that number? Call On Me did the most numbers for me. My old discography, Call On Me that time. Call On Me did like mad numbers. I was shocked like, wait, what? And this is the song that did not make it that big out of that country. As far as talking numbers, right? I'm like, okay, maybe I'm doing something right. So I said, okay, let's try again. Let's, let's do something. We did money. Money worked a bit. And then, Ire. As he started making a name for himself, he was compared by many to legendary juju musician King Sonyade. He goes into how he handled the comparison. First, me, I'm not going to lie. I thought like, nah, that's an insult because <laughs> there's, there's, no, there's nothing like modern Sonyade. Sonyade is Sonyade, that's it. King Sonyade is anytime, you know? But it felt, it felt good to be called that thing. It's just that I never let it get to my head. <laughs> nope. I respect that man too much to even take such compliments. Like, yeah. My vibe then was high life. It was urban high life. It was high life on, on a Western vibe, on um, modern music. It was juju in a modern way. And that's what I was feeling. I'm a go with your heart person. If people don't like it, that's okay. That's my mantra. Because the minute I start to do what people want, I'm not fulfilled. That's the end. And before I get into a point where I can't bring myself back, let me never even try it. So what I was doing then was what I wanted to do. When I took it up a notch to do about 30, that's what I wanted to do. And now that I'm doing Afropop, that's what I want to do. I am making Afropop and I am also making my 2021 album that's something entirely different. It's how I'm feeling. And I'm just going to do it, bro. That's always been me. When I released Shade, that's what I wanted to release. People said it was not going to work. I didn't care. They said I should go and learn Kenny. More, more club song she. I did not know how to, I don't know how to do it. So what's the point? I say to people, I'd rather do something that can make one million off than something that can make only five. And then I get stuck. We've seen it happen to people. See, if I fuck up, let it be from me. Because that way I can sleep well. Everything I've done is how I felt. At some point, his music was called monotonous by critics. He addresses that and speaks about the importance of constructive criticism. You just need one person to say it. One person like that has a bit of influence. And that's it. Can you imagine? That narrative has still not left some people. They still say it now. And I'm like, that's when you know that people are crazy. Like you are telling me now that my sound is the same. Okay, let me, let, me, let me bust your brain now. I tweeted something one time. I think it was when I released Before You Wake Up or something. It was when I released Kelly Gumegbe. Then I said, ah, oh, oh God, this one that you're now trying new sound now. I will go back to the old gold. I said, if you don't get the fuck, and you let me meji. Look at how human beings can be so confusing. You complained. Say, say I even listen to you. Say I even listen to you that are sounding monotonous and I'll change it. Now, you still want to complain. You are mad. 
And in the real sense, I was not even monotonous. Let me tell you what Nigerians expect in an album. A DJ mixtape where they put uh, reggae, akwala, and everything together. Bro, do you listen to international artists when they make music? Do you listen to even a Sonia Day when they make music? Do you tell them that they sound monotonous? They don't. It's a fucking body of work. It has a theme. They wanted to give them back, 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 everything, everywhere. And I'm like, no, that's not, that's not what an album is. I'm a body of work person. I listen to album all my life. I'm like, I see how great people do it. Go and listen to Adele. You can almost press the same key on the kidney. It is what it is. That's what, that's, 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 it's a body of work. She gave it a title for a reason, you know? It's a theme. But people don't get it. They want a mixtape. I'm never going to give you that. So, and you can't even tell me that I'm not, you cannot, I don't get it. You want me to change, do you want me to change my voice? My voice is my voice. A great man once told me that people only throw stones at fruit-bearing trees. So, like, yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> I didn't know that the people that like you will still be the people to curse you out. You know, I was getting all the love. I didn't think that I would ever get backlash in my life. The one time that I got it, I'm like, shit. When I performed at uh, Afrima, my performance was shit, if I'm being honest, because I didn't know better. It was what I knew. Also, you know, I guess they are used to people jumping on stage. I mean, I was not that type of artist. I mean, what am I singing? I'm singing Shadi. What am I jumping for? I take it back. My performance was not shit. It was just what was available to me. I, and then I saw people come at me. I'm like, I'm not invincible after all, <laughs> you know? But what did it do for me? I started to watch people perform. I started to watch YouTube. And I formed my own band. And nobody can even say that shit to me anymore. I'll punch anybody. <laughs> What? Have you even been to my show? What are you talking about? <laughs> a creative, not just an artist, not just like a performing and a singer. The one thing that foils creativity and then that just keeps people going will be words of encouragement, like great feedback. Like even if you're going to criticize, like criticize like respectfully. I wish this could have been done better, you know. I, I wish I could sang this way, you know. I wish he didn't use this line, you know. But all the same, great, great efforts. I don't care how thick your skin is if you constantly hear that your work is trash no bro bro it will kill you if it doesn't make you lose your vim it will just demoralize you that you almost just want to give up if you constantly hear that your work is whack when in the real sense what you've done is not bad it's just what you can do at that time and then maybe with a little constructive like criticism you can do better like take for example i spoke about how people came for me that I, my performance was shit maybe if people said said it better to me Maybe I would not feel bad. I feel bad. But then, me, I've always had that energy for, okay, last, last, I'll fix it. It made me work hard, right? That's not to say if it was said better. I mean, if the criticism were better, I still wouldn't have worked on it. That is suffer mentally. A popular person generally says something that an unpopular person will say and get away with. An artist says it and then it becomes a big deal. Have you seen people that will intentionally misunderstand you? It is crazy. And I just say like, it's easy for you to just be behind your keyboards and then just say these things. One day you will get your, it will be your turn and then you will see how crazy it is. I mean, it's not even about being famous, but somebody will say something to you when just, just when the thing that you needed would have just been a words of encouragement and they just bring you down and that's it. I'm not going to lie, my thick skin was weak at some point. But bro, the minute I found myself again, I was not going to let anybody tell me shit. You know me, you know my energy, I don't care. And one of the things that also helped me is because I've been on Twitter since 2009, so I know all the things. It's me you want to abuse, your father. I will give it to you back. Me, I don't know what I hear. We need to be a bit kinder. It talks about one of his favorite songs that didn't do as well as he would have loved. My song that tomorrow will still be paining me. I'll find a way to make that song blue. Just like I promote my songs, I did everything. 
again, it's, it's this thing, you don't control it. That's why I mean, I don't have expectations when I release songs. Honestly, I don't. It's just a song that I'm, that I'm attached to. I just, I, sometimes I want it to do well, you know. I don't, I don't release any song saying, ah, this one is a hit. No, I just release. Because you don't have that power. People like what they like. If they don't fuck with it, they don't fuck with it. That's it. I don't stress myself. Because the minute you now start thinking, ah, this one will eat and you know, it doesn't eat. That's why you now start to have heart attack. My brother, it's not that deep. It's a work of art. The best songs have not necessarily been hit. The best songs are in the album sometimes. Just sitting there. Singles that become hits, they are not necessarily the best work. That song, that time, nah, I really... And because that was the time, that was the first time I was trying something so mellow, you know. I lo- See, after Iray, I mean, my recent songs, after Iray, that's my, that's my favorite song. I enjoy that song. I enjoy performing that song. I wanted to, like, just go. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I appreciate what he's done because he has great numbers as well. But I just wanted to do more. And people that I genuinely love, like, love great music, enjoy the song. And they tell me all the time, don't worry. We that love it, we love it. We don't need for the song to be the number one chatting something, something. People talk about it. Kelegane is one of the greatest at the good work. And I'm happy that I wrote that song. He ends this discussion speaking about the effect of the global pandemic on his music and how much he misses performing live for his fans. Thank God that I've never made songs that needed club. As far as that, me, I'm just continuing what I've been doing. The only thing that's affected me is the life. I've had to cancel shows, festivals, like a lot of them. And you know that I enjoy being on stage. I cannot wait. I just, I want them to open outside back so we can go back to on stage. I need to perform something different on stage, you know, to give people, I need to give people. I've not even performed Kelegon again the way I want to. The next story is an extra from my conversation with LD, one of my favorite, absolute favorite episodes last season, probably my favorite episode from last season. If you haven't listened to that episode, you can go back and listen to it as well. So um, before I left Kaduna for Lagos, my family had actually left ahead of me, partly because You know, my dad really had settled in Lagos at the time and my mom, you know, kind of wanted to be with him also because she was having health complications at the time and she needed better health care and she wanted to be, you know, closer to the teaching hospital in Lagos. And then also (laughs) a huge part of it um, was these purges that kept happening in Kaduna where it was becoming more and more dangerous. Right. So for folks like us, like I grew up Muslim, so that was like some level of protection in a sense when they start the religious riots and they start going on their purge or whatever it is that they're doing with the with just killing people and doing all that craziness you had a a certain level of protection right because you were muslim if you weren't muslim then obviously you're you know an easier target but then it started getting worse and worse and it got to a point where it didn't matter whether you're muslim or not you could be whatever ibu hausa whatever if they if they figure out that you're not one of them then they take you out or or at least you were game there were, there were those kind of concerns as well so she was like you know what everything is telling me to just move south now so she left but then the challenge was finding a school that was comparable to the school that i went to you know in kaduna i went to essence international which is an american school it's a great school and she couldn't find any other school for me to go to and she wanted me to complete my high school there so she basically left me behind with 
her really good friend who happens to be my best friend's mom. So I stayed with them for the last two years of my high school before I then moved to Lagos. LD opens up about how he felt after the breakup of his group Tribesman. So I didn't feel too bad again because it wasn't ever about me. If it was about me, then I would feel bad. I didn't feel bad because it was more about the movement. And I felt that the movement would happen with or without freestyle. Would have been great if he was there. But if he wasn't there, it would still happen. That was how I felt. I was heartbroken because we had material and we had built momentum and everyone was expecting that second album. So that broke my heart. But at the same time, I was confident in my ability to make music. I never felt threatened by the fact that freestyle was going to go solo and make solo music because to me that was also still part of the movement it didn't matter whether it was he was from the inside or the outside and then the other thing is all of the other artists were starting to gain momentum as well you know so to me i felt like Meh, let's just keep it going plus i produce i sing i rap i write choruses i knew that i could go on basically so yes it was it was heartbreaking and it was actually a really emotional time but yeah he shares this incredible story of how the video for his song Bossibangba was the first ever music video to be shot using a red camera anywhere. Me moving to the US again was to really up my game, right? I wanted to learn new skills. I wanted to be around people who are doing this at the highest level. So when we were going to go shoot that video, um, I connected with a director, a young director, a friend of mine, um, who was working with this uh, studio called Spitfire in Atlanta. And Spitfire at the time had gotten this beta camera from this company in California, wherever, I can't remember where they were at the time, and they were testing it out. So when we went over there and I was trying to get them to shoot a video, what I wanted to do was actually shoot like on an Arri or something. Like I wanted something cinematic because nobody had anything like that, you know, at least not from Nigeria at the time. So I basically went over there looking for them. They were like, hey, you know what? There's this company that sent us this little gizmo and we've been playing around. We shot a couple things here and there. We took some photos with it. It's really amazing. Do you guys want to try it out? And I was like, can you guys show us some of the footage? And they showed us the footage. And I was like, this is the camera because, you know, I mean, it was it was just like it was mind blowing the quality that was possible out of that little machine. And at this time, it didn't even have a case. It was just like a bunch of wires like. It was like a little shell in the middle, but it was mounted on like clamps. Like it wasn't, there wasn't a shell. There wasn't a casing for it yet at the time is what I'm trying to say. And so they were like, yeah, you know, you guys go ahead and shoot with it, but you're going to need a ton of hard drives because it shoots at such a high resolution that you're going to need to like capture it onto. I think that we could only shoot for like five minutes at a time because it gets really hot. And so we go ahead and that's what we shoot the video on. That camera went on to be what people know as the red camera. Bossy Bambo was actually the very first music video, period, that was shot on a red anywhere in the world because of that whole situation. Yeah, that was the very first video that was shot on a red. Like the company probably doesn't even know that we shot that video. Well, I think Spitfire must have sent it to them. They had sent it to Spitfire and Spitfire was supposed to be beta testing it and kind of telling them things that they could enhance and blah, blah, blah. And I'm talking about when it wasn't even ready for production yet. And, and when the video got back home to Nige, obviously the quality of it was like way above anything else that was out at the time. So I think that, that also helped with the airplay that I that I received um, for that record. There are a lot of people that didn't realize that I had lived in the U.S. from like 2002, really. Throughout my first three albums, I was in the U.S. Like I, I, I wasn't in Nigeria, but I would go to Nigeria 
for like events i would go like easter like you know christmas and like whenever there was like a big tour or anything like that i would go to nigeria and do it and then come back to the u.s most people thought i lived in nigeria because they saw me on tv so much <laughs> that, that was an interesting phase of my life too i did a lot of traveling a lot of traveling because of that we toured like europe we toured the u.s canada africa like west africa south africa we went to the middle east went to dubai qatar and I, I didn't do asia though i really would have loved to do asia we didn't do asia but yeah fun time LD has spoken in the past about regretting the legacy his song Big Boy had when it was released. He goes into more detail about that. I did tweet about, you know, Big Boy and feeling somewhat responsible for contributing to a culture of basically celebrating money, even though that's not what my intention was when I made the, the song, right? I feel like I encouraged some of the things that have now eaten so deep into the society to where people have damn near no values like it's almost like a you know make it however you can regardless of the trail that you leave behind right where 419 has now become the norm you know like everybody is scamming as like a normal thing now like so it was me basically reflecting on the fact that a lot of people heard the song and their interpretation of the song may have been that I'm a big boy because I have a Hummer or a Porsche or a Bentley or whatever, when in fact, I'm a big boy because I'm successful is what I was intending to say. I wasn't trying to say I'm a big boy because I have these things, but then I feel like celebrating like the material things and like supporting that mindset of materialism was what I was really a bit apologetic about was like, man, if I realized the impact, the effect that this would have on the culture in general, then maybe I would have done this a little different, right? Maybe I wouldn't have made the record. And that's what I was tweeting about. It's a great record. I mean, it came from a good place. So it's not like I regret the actual song. I just regret the fact that it came at a time when there was a lot of that celebrating materialism, which has now really hurt the society. You know what I'm saying? He talks about what he's into now and why women never get music from him again. I come from a family of engineers, so I had a pretty strong technology background. We're very um, hands-on in my family with uh, computers and engineering. So I ended up, you know, on the IT side of things, writing code, doing development, and basically developing myself as a technology enthusiast. You know, managed a lot of projects and then basically went on an agile path. So basically today I'm an IT consultant and I also dabble in real estate. Actually, I do a lot of real estate, if I were to be honest. I still keep getting people reaching out to me saying, hey, you know, when are you going to put out a new album? And, you know, I'm saying now, like I've said a million times, I don't know that I feel like I'm going to be able to make music anytime soon just because of all the things that I'm doing right now. You know, there's real estate, there's IT consulting, which has become like a really big thing for me now. And then, of course, I have the family, you know, I have the wife. I have the fact that the music that I was making was primarily for an African market. So I would need to be in Africa more, which doesn't really align with kind of what I'm trying to do, <laughs> you know, over the next decade. So, yeah. The next story is from my discussion with Vera Izimura, one of last season's most popular episodes. 
Um, if you haven't listened to that episode, it's titled A Marriage Should Be Enjoyed. Her story is actually super incredible. I hope she's doing good. And um, yeah, let's get into the story. I started out college trying to study nursing. And the reason I was going to do nursing is because my parents were both medical doctors. And they told me from time immemorial that I was going to be a doctor, that it was in my blood. And so I strive to be a doctor. My high school yearbook says I was going to be a gynecologist, according to my high school yearbook. Never mind that I hated blood. I hated the sight of it. I hated everything that had to do with health, hospital, doctors. I wanted no parts of it, but I said I was going to be a doctor because it's in my blood. And so after high school, I didn't really strive to be a doctor. I was like, well, I can be a nurse. It's a very close second. So I tried. I did all the chemistry, anatomy and physiology, all those classes. I did all of them and I passed and I got into nursing school and then I failed out after two semesters. <laughs> the only part of nursing school I liked and I'm using the term loosely was when I did psychiatric nursing and that was just the clinical part because I got to speak to patients in the psychiatric unit and they had the most remarkable stories you know they had mental disorders so like there was a schizophrenic woman who told me she was talking to the devil her stories were so elaborate you know a part of me actually wondered you know as a Niger person I'm like Abi could this woman be talking to devil now <laughs> should I not be covering myself with the blood of Jesus to talk to this woman so there was that like and there was like the guy who if you didn't call him Jesus he wasn't gonna answer he believed he was Jesus there was a guy who had paranoid schizophrenia and said that they were trying to kill him everybody was trying to kill him so when it's time for food mealtime you had to wrap his food in a saran wrap whatever it was it didn't matter it could be a box of juice he had to be in a saran wrap which to a mind that's normal you would know that doesn't make any sense if they're going to poison you they can still do it through the saran wrap but it made sense to him so that was the only interesting part of nursing school for me everything else i absolutely hated it in clinical in my first semester in fundamentals of nursing i had to inject some heparin into a patient's belly i don't even know why he let me if i was him i'd have kicked me out because i kept trying i kept poking and it wasn't going through his skin but it wasn't because his skin was hard it's because i was having a problem with piercing skin with a needle like that just oh no i absolutely hated it then i flunked out of nursing school and i and i worked so hard like i had a study group my study group was made of three white girls that's how dedicated i was like i'm not gonna have nigerian people because we're going to sit down there and be gisting all day so in order to be studious in order to face my studies i will only have a study group with white people <laughs> and we had index cards we met up to study extra i did all these things and i still flunked out and i didn't go to school for about I don't know, a year or two? I don't remember now. Because I kept trying to get back into a different nursing school and they'll say, oh, you need to do this. Either they would outrightly reject me or they would tell me I needed more prerequisites. And I did more prerequisites and I still didn't get into nursing school. Eventually, I was like, mom, I'm tired of waiting. I decided to get a bachelor's degree in psychology because a lot of the classes I took, I could transfer into a psychology degree. And then I graduated. So, like I said, he lost his job after his mom came, and it took six months to get another job. As soon as he got that job, he said, we needed to move, get another place. By the way, I also got a job. I actually started working about two weeks before he did. We happened to get jobs at the same time. I said I didn't want to move, but he's like, no, we need to move, we need to move. 
Which, by the way, this job loss, his mother told him, God told her that it was his father that caused him to lose the job. So his mom and dad never, they weren't together, right? It was one of those things where they just didn't like each other, or at least the man was just like, I don't want anything to do with this woman. And so she convinced him that it was his dad who caused him to suddenly lose his job. And I asked them, I said, why would your dad make you lose your job? His dad was the one who brought him here, by the way, and his brothers, because his dad got married after having him. The dad got married and had three sons. And it was the dad who brought him and his other three brothers here. They grew up together here. So I said, why would your dad cause you to lose your job? And she said, it's because the dad was angry that he brought her to America. So I said, well, your dad, if he, if he really wanted to attack you or whatever, he could have just left you in Nigeria. But he fended for you. He brought you, took care of you. Like, I didn't understand it. But every time I questioned anything they were doing, they would tell me I was an Ajibota kid. I didn't understand I grew up privileged. My parents are doctors. I was an Igbo girl. I didn't understand Yoruba people. That's always where that conversation ended. And those are things I couldn't argue with. Yeah, I'm Igbo. Yes, I don't know the Yoruba culture like that. And those were facts. I still thought I was being logical, but they said I didn't understand the Yoruba culture. So we moved to a different apartment. Keep in mind, we had tried a few times before this to buy a house. It never quite worked out because even though he made more money, his credit was terrible because, you know, he's, he's always swiping credit cards, late payments, all these things in between. I had the great credit. He had a better job, not necessarily cash. He had a better income. So we never did succeed in buying a house. And so we moved when he got this new job somewhere else. Uh, it was a really nice apartment. It was three bedrooms. It was brand new. It was a nice area. A few months after we moved, he said he wanted to do a cookout. I didn't want to do a cookout. I said, we just moved all these expenses and we only just started working again. We need to save money. No, no, no. We have to do a cookout. And we invited friends. There were Nigerian people, American people, black people, white people. Out of everyone that came for that cookout, only two people were his people. Everybody else were people that I invited. And the thing is, so throughout our relationship, I noticed is he's always having some kind of issue with someone. Somebody did this to me. Somebody didn't do that to me. And then that's it. The person gets cut off. So by the time we did this cookout, he had two people. He didn't invite his father because, you know, his father is the one who made him lose a job. He didn't invite his brothers. I don't know what he was even mad at them for. And he only had two friends left. And his mother, I did not know this at that time. I only found out later, told his other friend that... I was controlling her son, that I used his star, his destiny to make myself popular. And that's why I always had people like this cookout. Look at all the people that came for me, American people, Nigerian people, all these people came for me. And yet her son only had two people. I didn't know at the time this was happening. I didn't know. At this time, I still thought we were friends. I still thought we were cool. He called a couple of times to say he was sorry, but... They were very insincere. We even met one time. I asked him about the juju. I was hoping, you know, I'll get a different story. But no, he said it was his. That he brought it from Nigeria for his protection and breakthrough into politics. Which, again, was shocking to me because as far as I knew, he was done with politics. That's what he said when he came back in 2013, that he was done. I didn't even know that he and his mom were plotting for politics again. 
his mom was not in my house. She was living in somebody's house in Chicago where she was causing problems and always, almost making the family to break apart there too. She couldn't come back to him because he was technically homeless as he could not come back to the house. She succeeded in breaking up his relationships. He had a friend he went into business with and the friend called him one day and told him he didn't want to do business with him. This happened in 2016 before we even separated. The friend said that they weren't going to do business anymore. I found out later after our own separation that the real reason, because I called a friend, told me was because that when they traveled to Nigeria, that my ex did some things that were diabolical and uncomfortable for him. Yeah, so I didn't know that part. What my ex told me was that this, his friend was jealous of him, this and that, because my ex was building a house in the village. I saw the house. That's another thing that was something I did wrong, that I wasn't being supportive about the house. And I wasn't being supportive about the house because it was in the village of Ogiri. And I said, I live in Maryland. I'm not interested in building a house in Ogiri. I haven't bought a house here. I would think you should take care of your home first. Take care of where you are. I was like, we live here. We work here. We don't have a house. And you're building a house in Ogiri. And you're telling me so that we can have a place to go. When we go, when are we going to go? Like, this is not a thing we do all the time. In fact, we've never, both of us, been together there. So why are we building a house? You're sending money to build a house. And he had a blueprint. And his mother was the one in charge of it. That woman can't read a blueprint. She doesn't know what... The house was not being built according to the blueprint. I saw the house and it was not what the blueprint showed. And he said, oh, you know, you have no interest in it. I said, no, you're right. I don't. I don't live in Ogiri. I live here. This is where I want to get a house, you know? All these things are things that were contributing to me looking at him like, you're not the person that I can trust to lead me. And then we talk about wives being submissive to their husband. Like, I can't be submissive to this. In order for you to want someone to submit to them, you need to first prove that you are worthy and deserving of such a privilege. Like if my kid, for example, trusts me, you know, she trusts that, okay, mommy will take care of her. If she has a problem, she runs to me. That's that trust. I didn't feel that with this spouse of mine. I didn't feel like if there was an issue, I could trust you to take care of it. Because the things you are saying are doing were telling me the exact opposite. I kept saving like a crazy person because I knew he's going to need this money. He's bad with money and eventually he's going to come for me for money. And that's exactly what happened. He always needed money. Although at this time his salary was more than double of mine, but he always needed money. He made six figures, but he always needed money. It wasn't going on me. I don't know where the money was going to. I mean, he paid bills, but so did I. But again, it was that lack of management. It's one of those people that he can win the lottery and still be broke because you still don't understand how the funds, you don't understand that the decisions you are making are affecting not just you, but everybody else. I'm having to fend for myself, for my child, for you, for your mother, for her children. I said, this is too much. I like, I can't take this on by myself. When I shared my story, I shared my story in January of this year. I wanted to make sure that not only was my divorce final, but that mentally I was in a place where I was ready to share. This in our community, in the African community, is a shameful thing, especially for the woman. You know, like you couldn't keep your home together. But I wasn't ashamed. Even before I got married, I never thought that divorce was a thing of shame. 
I thought it was ridiculous that a woman would always be blamed for the end of a marriage. No matter what you're seeing in that marriage, that you should stay there and take it and continue to get on your knees and pray and pray and pray. I never felt that way. So for me, the decision to walk away, while not a fun decision to make, the alternative was not an option. I was not going to stay. I couldn't stay. I told myself, I'm so young. I don't want to wake up one day. I'm 60 years old, 70 years old, and like telling myself, I wish... I had walked away. I wish I had not spent the last three, four decades with somebody who was not worth it. Sometimes my friend Fumi says, oh, if only we had known this woman was like this, we wouldn't have let her come and stay with you. And I said, I'm glad she came to stay with me because she was the catalyst to get me to where I needed to be anyway. I think that if she did not come and she was in Nigeria, that she would still be telling him Uluwa Sawitbe and telling him all these things. Perhaps the poison would have seeped in in a slower pace, but it would have been there anyway. Instead of walking away in 2017, maybe it's now 2057 and 67 and I'm way older and I've just realized that my entire marriage has been a sham. All this time we were sleeping together, making kids, doing this and doing that, you're over on this side doing something entirely different. I just want to end on one note. When I was going through this thing, this whole separation, divorce thing, it was an extremely tough time. But one day I was in church and the pastor had mentioned this and it resonated with me and I always tell it to people in case it helps them. And he had said that sometimes God gives you a mountain so you can show others that it can be moved. And I don't know how religious you are as you're listening to this, um, but no matter your religion or faith, you're still human. You still have the basic human emotions. You still love or want to be loved or want to have a companion and don't want to be hurt. And I just want to say, especially for women, that we can strive to have the best like marriage isn't shouldn't be a do or die thing it shouldn't be a thing you go into and you suffer marriage is not suffrage it's not endurance when people tell women you need to compromise what they're really saying is you need to bend over and do what he said yes it is compromise but it's from two people it's a partnership it should be a partnership it's not ownership it's not husband owning wife or wife owning husband it's two adults who are level-headed and saying we want to spend the rest of our lives together and want to do this and want to do that it's not one person making all the rules and the other person doing everything then that's not partnership but whatever your situation is i just wish you love and light and again if you need to connect if you need to talk if you need to vent after i put my story out well it's so many people they still contact me they still vent they still want to tell me what's going on and unfortunately too many women reach out to say that they are in similar situations and some of them can't get out or they think they can't get out for reasons of like, I don't have the money to get out or it's not our culture for a woman to file for divorce. All these things continue to hold us back and you only have one life to live. This is not a rehearsal. You don't get to come back and do it right the second time around. With that, we've come to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed listening to these extra stories. I wanted to give people a taste of what people on Patreon, you know, 
had as extras last season. If you want to listen to extras on all the stories last season, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash wale. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash wale to um, listen to extra stories that didn't make the public feed last season. Um, like I said earlier, people on Patreon, there's a lot coming for you this season. Because of things that happened last season, I don't think I really did as much as I wanted to do on there, but I plan to do a lot more this season, you know, for you. So um, be on the lookout for that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I'm actually so happy that we finally have this started because I needed to start somewhere. Okay. Um, I need to get this out of the way. I will see you in two weeks with a new story. Tell your friends that in these moments is back. Tweet me, uh, message me on Instagram, support on Patreon if you can. We're back, baby. Come on. I wish you could see the excitement in my face. Thank you so much once again. I keep saying thank you. The Yoruba is strong in me today. Um, but um, thank you so much. See you in two weeks. Take care of yourself. I would say wear your masks, but I feel like no one does that anymore. So, you know, do what you want to do. Okay, so see you in two weeks. Have a good one. Bye.